so these three gentlemen, we have Mike, we have Rob, we have Timo, and we have Lyndon as well. There's another gentleman who was with them, Gabe, but he uh, had a family emergency and he had to leave, but he'll be back in a few weeks. He'll be back in a week. And so it's my privilege to be able to pray for these men and be part of what they're doing in building 65 wells uh, in Africa. So I'm just going to spend some time now to, to pray for this ministry, and then you're going to hear about the centrality of Christ and what Cycling for Water is doing around the world. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing love. We thank you that you've given these men this passion to see these wells built, but not only that, to see your gospel, the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed in all the world. And so, Father, guide them each and every pedal, each and every step as they go across this amazing land that you've built. And for the people they encounter, Father, would they be, be moved by what you're doing through them? And would they come to know Jesus? And for those who already know you, would their faith be strengthened, knowing that you're moving around our country and around the world? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're building your church and that nothing can stop it. And thank you for inviting us to play a part in what you're doing and bringing all things to yourself for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. We're excited to tell you this story. We want to start with the Cycling for Water story. You may wonder, how did you four old guys get this figured out? Well, it all started actually back in, in uh, 2013. Rob uh, and I were at a conference together, and he said to me, Hey, Mike, I want, to talk about, I want to talk to you about something confidential. Well, I'm in marriage ministry, so I thought, oh, dear, something's going on with their marriage. <laughs> and uh, so Rob comes and... Uh, again says, you know, I'd really like this conversation to be confidential. Uh, and I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> Oops. Then, he, um, then he says to me, um, that's okay, we'll pick it up later. Um, then he says to me, I heard you've, you've started cycling. I've always wanted to cycle across Canada. Would you do that with me? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm cycling like 20 kilometers. I've never even thought of cycling across Canada. And uh, in that moment, I said to him, you know, Rob, if I decide I want to do this with you, I want to do it for a cause. And immediately he said, yeah, yeah, let's do it for a cause. And then we started looking around to figure out what cause would be worth There are many, many things you could do. And so we came to the point where we thought water, water is the cause. And um, in the context of that, I'm going to have to turn around because my computer fell on the floor, but uh, that we discovered that there's 785 million people on this planet who do not have access to clean water. Now, just to put that in perspective, that's almost the population of North, South, and Central America. Just think of that. Think of not having access to clean water. 
And then the next thing that just breaks my heart is that every 90 seconds, a child dies because they do not have access to clean water. They die of a water-related disease that's curable. They just had clean water. And uh, that just gripped our hearts. So that became our cause. And we actually cycled across Canada in 2014, again, a team of four. We cycled from uh, Victoria to St. John's, Newfoundland, and raised funds for 33 water wells. And at the end of that ride, we kind of joked. We said, well, maybe when we're 65, we should do this again. Well, actually, Rob and I are turning 67 this month. And um, we, we are doing it again. And this time, we're going for 65 wells. Um, and here's our new team. So Timo and myself and Rob all cycled in 2014, and we added Gabe. He's the newbie that's joined our team. And uh, our desire is to, to, we had planned to go from Tuktoyaktuk to Prince Rupert to Halifax, but because of COVID restrictions, we've changed that to uh, Dawson City as our starting point. And we also have a support um, vehicle driver and logistics man, Lyndon, who's going to, to speak to you today, who keeps us pointed in the right direction. He keeps us fed. He, we, we call the support vehicle our lunch wagon. We see it go by, and we're thinking, okay, we're going to get some food. And um, yeah, as I said, the plan. And here's a map of what we're, we're attempting. And um, the original was 10,000 kilometers. It's a little less than that now because we've, uh, we're starting in Dawson City, but it's still a daunting uh, task. And as we look at this plan, we um, are partnering with GAIN, Global Aid Network. And GAIN um, reveals hope by sharing God's unconditional love and restores life by demonstrating the gospel through compassion to those living in poverty, injustice, and crisis. And so we're working with their Water for Life initiative, which is uh, part of their ministry. And um, I want to go to the next. The, uh, in this uh, clip, it'll explain a little bit why this is so important. A woman will walk five kilometers a day to gather water for her family. Forgoing all other ambitions in life, all she wants is to make sure her family has water to use. Tragically, as she walks the long journey home to her children, with the disease-riddled water atop her head, the water she carries could ultimately cause their death. Today, one in nine, or 844 million people lack access to safe water. In the developing world, 58% or 842,000 deaths per year is attributed to a lack of safe drinking water supply, sanitation, and hygiene. We can change this. Water is associated with every aspect of life. Therefore, a lack of access is an injustice. Safe water brings hope into a community. It relieves suffering and restores dignity, which every person deserves. 
Clean water unlocks the opportunity to health, development, and empowerment for the future. Water is hope. Water is love. Water is life. Through your partnership, hundreds of communities, thousands of lives can be changed. By providing fresh, disease-free water, a new story of transformational development can begin. The course of history can be changed. Revealing hope, restoring life. Join us. And um, GAIN accomplishes some very significant things. As you look at the next slide here, you, um, so, yeah, it's, so our goal is 65 deep calf water wells. And um, in this, we, um, we're all grandfathers. This is actually a picture of my granddaughter. Her name is Zoe. And uh, I'll show you this picture for a couple of reasons. One is it would break my heart. To, to stand by and watch her suffer and possibly die without the access to clean water. Um, that would break all our hearts to have that happen. In fact, I was doing a training ride, and I'm an optimist. So I'm picturing cycling across Canada as wind at your back, sun in your face, and I'm doing this training ride. And I, at 6.30 in the morning, I'm riding uphill. The wind is in my face, and it starts to rain. And I, yeah, perfect. And I thought, oh, this is going to be difficult. But then I had a second thought, and that thought was, it would be much more difficult to watch your children die because they don't have clean water. And so as we look at this uh, picture of my granddaughter, you've got to say she's cute. It's okay. <laughs> she, and um, what we've done as a family, we've said, hey, we want to be one of the 65. So we have... Um, committed to sponsor well as a family. So we've recruited our friends and, and anybody who wants to from church, from community to contribute. And then we are actually going to have a well in Africa named Zoe's Well. And the children's book was inspired from that. And it's about a little girl who gets her family. She hears that kids need clean water. And it's a little story about her getting, rallying the troops to get a well in Africa. And as we think about this, the, um, in our next uh, slide here, by providing a well, children, uh, children's school attendance goes up, the malnutrition and sickness goes down, women have more time for their families and community involvement, the local economy improves, and um, God's unconditional love is revealed, and leaders uh, are trained to minister in their local community. And let me tell you a story. Uh, one of the wells recently drilled uh, was in northern Tanzania. And in this particular community, there had been 13 attempts to drill a well, and they all failed. And Gain was invited to the community to attempt the 14th attempt for a well. And uh, the people from the local church actually gathered around while they were drilling and um, prayed that God would give them success. And uh, you saw in the video that when they hit the well, the water shoots out. And that happened as they were praying around the well. And uh, obviously, great rejoicing. 
And they also used a tool called the Jesus Film and for three nights ministered to the community. And in those three nights, 300 people indicated decisions for Christ. Our goal is to bring clean water, but also to bring the living water that comes through understanding God's love and forgiveness. It It transforms communities and it transforms lives. And so what we think of is we're giving people an opportunity to do something good. When you hear about 785 million people not having access to clean water, you think, well, what can I do? Well, for $8.50, you can give someone water for a lifetime. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like a McDonald's meal. In fact, it's probably more than, less than a McDonald's meal. And um, so we're, we're going across Canada just telling people about that. And we invite you to partner. We're looking for 65 uh, individuals, companies, churches who raise their hand and say, I will take a well. And um, we also would invite you to pray for us as we travel across this country. There's lots of opportunities for <laughs> all kinds of crazy things to happen. And um, we're just trusting God will protect and get the word out that we can indeed do something really good and change lives and change communities. Thank you. Hold that. Thank you for that feedback this afternoon already, everybody. That was wonderful. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I almost pulled the mic off uh, with my mask. Am I okay, guys? It's, it, it's good? Okay. Uh, thanks for having us. You know, I, I just believe so much in the local church, and, and you are part of that. That's part of why I actually left 30 years of ministry uh, to join Global Aid Network because I get to be with people like you all the time. And uh, I was a lead pastor for uh, 23 years in the local church. And uh, we actually came to partner with Global Aid Network uh, about seven years ago uh, in another area of disaster relief that they do. Uh, but um, we get to tell stories like this of God's grace and of his love. And so we hope that uh, that God would just do something as he is already doing something great in your midst. And so... Thank you for having us, and thank you uh, to Pastor Harrison, actually, for letting me share this afternoon. i got to tell you, there's not a lot of pastors that would actually allow another guy to come in and preach in series uh, with where you're at this afternoon. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to open to Colossians chapter 1 uh, and put your finger in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and we're going to get there in a moment. Uh, it is one of the most amazing passages to wrap our minds around, and there is a sense in which I actually kind of hope that your mind is stretched this afternoon with the wonder of who Christ is, because you know what? There is theologians who have studied this one for years, and they still don't get it all. And you'll understand why by the end of our time together today. Well, I, I believe that we are all theologians, and uh, I know that if you're a theologian here today, you'd go, oh, 
well, you know, that in the strictest sense of the word, you know, that, that's not really true. Well, I've been a pastor for 30 years, and so I'm saying it is. Because if you have thoughts about God in some fashion, if you have interacted with him, if he's your personal savior, if you're thinking about him, and maybe you're seeking him this afternoon, uh, you're a theologian. Theos, God, thoughts about God. We, we all have them. Uh, uh, we think about how he works, uh, about what he's done in our lives, how he interacts with the world. And even if you have never had thoughts about God, in the sense, that's a thought about God too. And I hope maybe even this afternoon you would experience something new about him that you would start thinking about him more. A.W. Tozer said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's true. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, as I said, I pastored for 30 years, and I love the everyday theologians, the kinds of people that are in this room. Now, I went to seminary, and for all of those of you online who went to seminary, thumbs up to you. I love you guys. Uh, but theology is lived out in the everyday of life. And so, if you wish, just turn to the next imper- next uh, next to the person next to you and say, I knew there was something about you. You're a theologian. So if you want, you can just do that. Um, uh, yeah, you're a theologian. Yes, you are. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the everyday theologian. Some of the best thoughts have come from everyday theologians. But here's the rub. You want to know what the problem is? The problem is some of the worst thoughts have come from everyday theologians, too. We are people who are fragile, and we are influenced by so many, uh, uh, by the world around us. I mean, you are people trying to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense sometimes, right? Uh, Am I the only one on that? Do I hear an amen to that? Like, the world doesn't make sense sometimes, and we're trying to make sense of it. And so we have this this sense that that there is... uh, Good ideas and ideas that are not based around what God is all about. And so often today, people aren't concerned with the truth. They're concerned about what is truth to them. But if that's not centered in Jesus, we become unhinged and a little uncentered. Because if it's not the Jesus way, we often lose our way. So how far off do you have to be? in order to really lose your way. Well, I can tell you about these cyclists that if they're off just a little bit of a degree, they're going to go off to that shoulder and then into the ditch. Thankfully, it hasn't happened yet. But isn't that the way life is? You can be off just a little bit. And so we want to understand the world and the God who has made this world. And the way we come to understand that is by understanding essential thoughts about God, crucial thoughts about God holding on to the critical center, and in a sense, ignoring everything else. Well, you know, in the letter written to the Colossians, this is exactly what Paul is addressing. Those who have studied this setting in Colossae were people who, uh, it was a people that had all different ideas, not so unlike our world today. And as I have uh, sort of went through your town, I have noticed that There's all kinds of ideas in this town, different philosophies, different religions, things that are going to invite you to just be a degree or two off. 
And that's the kind of world that Paul was writing to in Colossians. And you know, these people, we'd have indication that these people were actually a church that was on the move. And we know that by the way Paul greets them. And I'm just going to start at verse 3. And I just want you to hear these words because they're such important words. Maybe they would be words that Paul would say on behalf of the Lord to you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is verse 3. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. So right off the bat, we see, you know what? These people don't seem to be drifting. Seems to be good things happening. Hold that thought for a moment. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same, uh, pardon me, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it is, has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Doesn't it sound fantastic? For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. What a wonderful picture of the church. What a wonderful picture of you. And he goes on to say, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You could stop the whole book right there and be just filled up, right? So much good stuff. So I would ask you, why would the Apostle Paul have to go on then and pinpoint the center of their lives? Why? Well, I would submit to you that even amongst the most faithful of God's people, even amongst people who are just growing in him, cracks can form. Little things can press in on us. And that's why he goes on to talk about the centrality of Jesus. That if we aren't careful, or maybe better put, if we don't keep Christ at the center, things can happen. I've seen things happen amongst people over the course of ministry years. People that you would have never thought in a million years would go off track. Just experience a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a pull in this direction or a little bit of a pull in this direction. And before you know it, God is being questioned. Before you know it, faith is being left. It's really interesting how us people react in this world, isn't it? To which Paul says, I want to give you a cosmic view. Big God. And we're going to right-size God this afternoon. Because sometimes we get little pictures of God when... It's to be a big picture of who he is. In the midst of our problems, in the midst of our pursuits, in the midst of our passions, sometimes that all becomes bigger than his presence. And Paul says, no, it's about his presence. And so Paul lifts us to a spiritual plane that, that he actually goes to a number of times over the course of all of the writings that he 
share the inspired word of God. But he takes us to this ominous place in verse 15, where it says this, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, we have to stop right there. Because, honestly, uh, Pastor Harrison gave me this passage. We could spend like five years on this passage. We're not going to. We're not even going to spend five hours. But we could spend all day on this passage. But it's really important to stop at this passage, at this verse, because it's so important for us to, to recognize who Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God. It basically means in the Greek, exact replica. Now, we have a hard time getting our minds around this, but it is, it is if you're going to see something, Jesus, he says, is the exact replica of God. And the first thing that we go to is some kind of physical presence. Well, isn't it interesting that while many artists, many uh, uh, people have tried to sort of portray what God has looked like, no one can say they actually knew what Jesus looked like. That's on purpose because the Apostle Paul is not referring to that. He's referring to the exact character of who God is, the exact replica in character, in values, in emotion, in intellect, and will, and purpose. So if you want to see what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to see what God's character is like, look at Jesus. If you want to see what God's values are, look at Jesus. If you want to see what his emotions are like, look at Jesus. His intellect, look at Jesus. His will, look at Jesus. His purpose, look at Jesus. Fill in any of that. It's awesome. We look at Jesus in the Gospels and we see God. Did you know that that's not enough for some people these days? They want Jesus to be, oh wow, like pyrotechnics and all kinds of stuff that kind of impresses them. They're not that interested in character and values and purpose. But the Apostle Paul begins here in this spot in a very important thing. He says, you know, if you want to understand God, look at Jesus. Now, don't go too far ahead of us here because he talks about Jesus being the firstborn over all creation. And the first thing that we think about is sort of birth order. But that's not what it's about. It's about position. Every person in this room has a heritage. There's probably somebody before you. But there's nobody before Jesus. Because he and God are one. They are coexistent. To which at this point, you might go, uh, Lyndon, I think you've lost me already. <laughs> It's hard to understand who Jesus is, and yet Paul's describing it here. He's the exact image bearer of God, and he is this amazing, amazing firstborn over all creation. There was no one before him. He has always been coexistent with God. Well, it gets even better because as you continue to study this scripture, and when you're studying scriptures, if you get to a scripture passage where there's a re repetitive word, you need to circle that. And in this passage, there is a word that keeps coming up over and over and over. It is a little three-letter word. And if you were studying this passage, it would be wise for you to circle that word and say, hmm, what does this mean? I think you'll pick out that word. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might have the supremacy or everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Uh, what is the word that keeps coming up all over and over again? Class, it is all. And you know what? There's no fancy Greek uh, translation for this, is there, Harrison? All means all. You know, sometimes in the Greek, there's all these different kinds of meanings that we wouldn't have got if we just sort of read it. But all means all. Everything. And this is where we begin to really, it's a, it's a mind bend because all things were created by him and through him and for him. You know what it really means? We live in a big world with a big God who is personal to you. Big world, big God who is personal to you. If I was to sort of summarize this passage, I would say, big God who cares for little me. And I don't mean that in a self sort of demeaning way. I mean, he is so big. How could he ever care for me? And yet, his love is big enough. For him and in him. Did you know that you were made for him? It says right here. It's not that he just made all things. You were made for him. All things have been created through him and for him. You are a created being. You were made for him. I don't know whether you've ever had a gift given just for you. It was so individualistic to you that it wouldn't have made sense that it was given to anybody else. And you felt that. You felt that. You, you thought, oh, this is perfect for me. Have you ever said that to yourself? It's in the very same way that you were made for God. I don't know about you, but I don't know how God does it. Because the first thing I say is, if God is made for every person on the planet, and he knows all things and everything is through him, God's got a lot going on. And I don't know how he does it, but I know why he does it. And he does it because his love is big enough for every person in this room, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done. I don't think this really came into my understanding until I became a dad. Now, all you dads and moms out there, you'll understand this because you have that first little baby in your arms and you would think, this is love right here. I love this little baby. And in one sense, you can't imagine having love for one more, can you? Until that other little baby comes along and our second little baby was a baby girl. The first was a baby boy. The second was a baby girl. And all of a sudden, that's a little, that's different, right? Dads of baby girls. The baby girls are special. And so now I have love for this one, and I have love for this one. It's kind of hard to imagine that you could have love for another one. But somehow, we as dads have this unbelievable capacity and moms for more. 
because they're ours. We love them. And, and our third one came along, and each one of these is so different. If I had my three kids up here beside me, there's a certain resemblance, but each one of them is so different. Now just take that and multiply it by a bazillion. And I don't know how God does it, but I know why. And that is because he loves you. And he's capable of doing that over and over and over again. And so you were made for him. So, as I just close my comments, what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means that uh, your very existence is reliant on who God is. And I know that's a big statement. But in verse 17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Think about that. In all things hold together. None of us takes a breath without God having held it all together. Not one breath. Not that one. And not that one. And not that one. Every breath you take. You walk out this door today, every breath you take is held together. Every, every bit of life is held together by him and through him. And uh, what that really tells us is that we're not accidents. None of us are accidents in this world. We are loved. We have deep purpose because he cares about your next breath. Now, I'm from Edmonton, Alberta. I was born and raised there, spent the first 30 years of my life. Uh, Brent and I were talking about that. Brent, right? Yeah, thanks, Brent. And um, it's been some time since I've been where there's a lot of mosquitoes because I live in southern uh, British Columbia now, and in our area, it's very dry. And um, God bless you for living amongst the mosquitoes, folks. Um, and I don't know about you, but I have a hard time discovering what the purpose of mosquitoes are. Has anybody else ever had that thought? Um, now, apparently, they eat things and other things eat them. So they're part of the food chain. So, okay, God, I'll take that one from you. Like, that's their purpose. So while, while we might wonder sometimes what the purpose of things are, there is no doubting the purpose for your life here. He loves you very much. Your very existence uh, depends on him. Number two, your salvation is part of his plan. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to what? To reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I can tell you folks that that is a mouthful. It would take us a week to unpack that. But what we see here more than anything else is the definition of love where he reconciles himself to all things through his blood. Through his blood, through Jesus' blood shed on the cross for us. So it's not just about our existence. It's about our re-existence. It's about our understanding of who God is, that he loved us very much enough to send his son to die on the cross. So it's your very existence, it's your salvation, and it's your daily walk. If you were to study the whole book of Colossians, you would find that this theme comes up over and over and over again about everything is in him. In fact, when we uh, uh, had a youth uh, event 
uh, a number of years ago back in Alberta. That was a theme, and it was just two words on the T-shirt, in him. And that was, that was sort of the whole idea of what we were trying to communicate, that everything was in him, and our lives are in him. And if you were to flip over to Colossians 2, 6 to, uh, 2, 6 to 7, what does it say? So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Your daily walk, your decisions, your struggles, your challenges, your victories, everything about what's going to happen this next week is in him. And we can invite him into that. And there's a good piece of the Spirit of God that shouts out to us, that invites us into Him. You know, we are sort of a center-focused culture. We want to talk about me. And my wife's a kindergarten school teacher. And they spend the better part of a year leading little kids through the trauma of realizing they're not the center of the world. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's pretty much the only curriculum for the first year, despite everything else. But as we get older, we're kind of still in that zone, aren't we? But our daily walk is our purpose in Him and His life for us. And then finally, it's really about our daily relationships that are in Him. You know, relationships are God's natural way of sharing His supernatural grace. That's really what the whole gospel is about. Have you, uh, have you ever sort of read the gospel through that lens? Jesus came to take us from a self-centered zone to an other-centered zone. All the time, the disciples were concerned about sort of themselves and what was going on. Jesus said, no, look out to the harvest. Look out to the people that we're trying to reach. Look out there. And relationships were important to Jesus. And, and we're moving from a self-centered life to a Christ-centered life. And I don't know about you, but is any, does anybody else struggle with that? There's an amen to that. But this, it, and it, is, it, is it really, really hard? I got a word for you. It is impossible without the Spirit of Christ as the center. It is absolutely not possible without Him living in us and us in Him. And so your daily relationships are so important, Christ-centered, about others. And so we have this Jesus who came along to his disciples. And uh, in John chapter 14, they were still kind of wondering who he was. Thomas said, you know, show us the Father and you know, we'll come to this understanding. And what does Jesus say in John 14? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the center of life. I am the center of the way. I'm not just a path to God. I am the path to God. And there's no way around me. I can tell you that over the course of 30 years or so in ministry, this is a very hard message. There's a lot of people that want many paths to God. In fact, I'll never forget we were in a membership uh, class one time, and we were just talking about what makes our church tick. 
And it was a lot of these kinds of things, the centrality of Christ. And a gentleman who had been in our church probably for two years, I don't know what he was hearing, I don't know what he was thinking, he got this puzzled look on his face, and he, he, he perked up and he asked the question, he said, so Lyndon, what you're trying to tell me is that there is only one central theme in life and that there is only one way to God. And I said, yes. And he said, I'm out of here. I'd like to tell you that that man somehow found his way back into the centrality of Christ. I'd like to tell you that, you know, that all was made well. It is a hard message. There is only one central theme, and it's Jesus. But if you take that path, you'll not be served. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And even now that you would bend your ear low to hear your children, we thank you. All over this room, Lord, there's, uh, there's people just having lots of thoughts about you, God. And thank you that you meet each one of us where we're at. And even though this is a hard, hard message in some ways, Lord, you come to us with an open hand. The God of the universe, so big and so awesome, holds out his personal hand to each of us. Will you take it? Lord, I just, uh, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters here who are here seeking you at different places in their spiritual journey. Would you show them your grace and your love today? You are so good. You are a father who never runs out of love because you are love. And for that, we're grateful. So, Father, uh, just open up our hearts as we live in you this week to experience you all, for all that you are. And we will be careful, Lord, with thanksgiving to keep you at the center in our relationships, in our daily walk, in our existence, in the salvation that you've provided, and in our relationships. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.